right. As we turn to the book of Acts um, this morning, we're going to read out of Acts 21 in just a moment. I want to remind you where we are in the story. Um, Paul, the early church leader, um, once persecutor of Christians who encountered God's love, um, has felt like he has heard from the Holy Spirit that he is to return to Jerusalem, um, where he once was a rising star in the religious system, um, but now there are people there who want his life. He knows that he has enemies in this city, um, but he feels like the Holy Spirit is telling him to return there and that there will be hardship. And so we're kind of following um, his journey back to Jerusalem. In fact, in Acts chapter 21, he makes it back to Jerusalem and almost immediately is arrested, as he expected, by people who really want to take his life. And so for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is going to be a prisoner after this point. Well, today, for us to understand the passage that we're about to read, there's really two things that we need to explore. First of all, the nature of New Testament prophecy, which I'm going to make an overview of in just a moment. You're not going to understand everything that's happening in this passage if you don't have some basic framework for the way the Holy Spirit speaks prophetically in the church even today. Um, and then secondly, we're going to talk a lot about how to hear God in the midst of suffering. Um, particularly when things get painful, um, what is his voice like and how might we anticipate to hear his voice in those spaces? So first of all, even before we read out of the passage, let me just give you a really quick overview of the way that prophecy works in the New Testament. And I'm going to define what prophecy is. So first of all, let me say this. That prophecy, and I'll have this on the screen behind me, that um, prophecy was promised. Um, Julie, if you can get to that New Testament overview, that prophecy overview, it's, it should be after the verses. There you go. That prophecy was promised. So hundreds of years uh, before Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the Old Testament prophets, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had foretold a period of human history that was unprecedented where God would speak widely to his own people and directly. So the prophet Joel, hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, says, your sons and daughters, so men and women, will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So old and young, male and female, will hear directly from the Holy Spirit in a way that did not happen in previous ages of history. Well, sure enough... After Jesus' ministry, his ascension back to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. And what the prophet Joel said would happen did happen. The Holy Spirit began to speak widely to his own people. So if I were to give a definition of prophecy in the, Old Test in the New Testament in this age in which we live now, I would say that prophecy, this is one maybe very basic definition, but that New Testament prophecy is a spontaneous thought brought to mind by the Holy Spirit, and then shared in the person's own words. So it's a spontaneous thought. Um, in our experience, this comes in many ways. Sometimes the thought is of a scripture passage. Sometimes someone will see just a picture in their own mind. Sometimes they'll see a word. Sometimes it's just an impression, like, oh, I think all of a sudden this thing is in my mind that I should share with somebody else. And then that thought is taken and shared with a person. Um, for a specific purpose, which we'll get to in a second. Now, if you've been hanging out with us at the Gospel Tabernacle, you know that we believe that this is something that the Holy Spirit still does today. And so 
If you've hung out with us, it's not uncommon probably for you to experience someone walking up to you or praying for you and saying, hey, I just had this come into my mind. Can I pray it over you? And by the way, that kind of is our style around here. Um, we don't really like walk up to each other and say, thus says the Lord, you know. Not that that's technically, I mean, it's fine, whatever. But we've just learned to kind of keep it chill and to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so um, sometimes this is what just happened with the children up here, Michael and Brooke, in a time of prayer before this service, just had specific things come to mind for each child. And as they've learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, they then share those things. That's what New Testament prophecy is. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have experienced this on the receiving end or have experienced it yourself and given something to someone else or seen it in one of our prayer meetings? So many, many folks in our church. And I want to say, if, it, if you haven't yet, it's okay because Jesus loves you, right? And the amount of, um, here's how you can tell, like, if Christ loves you, it's by looking at the cross, right? Not by the amount of prophetic words you receive or give, right? But by looking at the cross. So he loves you, and if you hang out with us long enough, it will happen, so you'll see, all right? Okay, so I want to say this, that this experience of New Testament prophecy, next, it's part of the common Christian experience. So the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, do not despise prophetic utterances. He's saying when you get together to worship God, make room for the prophetic. Make room for the Holy Spirit to bring something spontaneously to someone's mind and then to share it. He says in his letter to the church at Corinth to desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And so some of us may experience this more or less, but it's a common experience among his people that the Holy Spirit speaks directly to people. And the purpose of all of this, the purpose of prophecy, is to build people up. So Paul also says that the one who prophesies speaks to people for the strengthening, encouraging, and comfort of other people, right? So this is the reason why we would take the risk to share something that God has put in our hearts or brought into our mind. It's to strengthen, comfort, and encourage somebody else. It's to build them up. We never take what God is saying and use it to tear another person down or to control them but instead to build them up. It's important to remember that even though it's common and even though the purpose of this is love among the family on mission, that God speaks to us and we share what we think we might be hearing from the Holy Spirit, that prophecy does have certain limitations. So Paul says we know in part and we prophesy in part. What Paul is saying is we think we hear God, but we only have partial understanding. And we share what we think we've heard, but we only do it Partially, we don't have the full picture of God's purposes and plans. Many times we have a picture or an impression, and we're not sure that we completely understand it, but it's still worth sharing with somebody else. And because prophecy has its limitations, it's important to test it. So Paul says, test them, the prophecies that you're allowing in your gatherings, test them all, and then hold on to one as good. We'll test them against what? Well, especially the word of God, right? Because God's not going to contradict himself. And the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict uh, Jesus, right? So if someone stands up in our gathering and says that Jesus is not Lord, that's not the Holy Spirit, right? That's another spirit that we'll need to deal with, right? And so, so, um, so just a reminder, some, of how the Holy Spirit speaks in our gatherings. Now, with all of that being said, 
Let's look at what is happening to Paul here as he travels to Jerusalem and people are sharing with him these prophetic words. Acts 21, beginning in verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, remember Paul had just said goodbye to the elders from the church at Ephesus. He's making his way back to Jerusalem and meeting with these groups of disciples and saying goodbye to them. It says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So let's just pause here. What's happening? Um, Paul gathers with these disciples at this stop while, you know, the cargo is being unloaded from this ship. And while he's gathering with the disciples, we can guess probably in a time of worship and prayer much like this, um, that there's some prophetic words coming forward that Paul is going to experience some hardships when he gets to Jerusalem. Now, this little verse right here that through the Spirit they encourage him not to go on to Jerusalem has caused a lot of confusion, and you can see this confusion in the commentaries on my shelf because it creates this debate. Well, Paul, was Paul supposed to go to Jerusalem, or wasn't he? Because through the Spirit, he's being urged not to go. Paul felt like from the Spirit he had heard to go to Jerusalem, but when he got together with the brothers and sisters and the family on mission, it seemed that the Spirit was telling him that there were hardships ahead, and the believers understood that to mean that he should not go to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you my opinion, and I think there's many who would agree with me. I think that Paul heard the Holy Spirit correctly. He was supposed to go to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, I think we can understand what's happening here in verse 4 by reading on and seeing another example of prophecy that I think clarifies for us the dynamic that's happening. So let's begin in verse 4 again. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemus where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, now here's what I really want you to pay attention to. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to over, or over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So now we have a very clear prophetic word coming from the Holy Spirit. Agabus, who is gifted in prophecy, um, receives this message and travels and shares it with Paul. You're going to Jerusalem. Your hands and your feet are going to be bound when you get there, and then you are going to be handed over to the Gentiles, that is, the Roman Empire. And we're going to see in the book of Acts, this prophecy comes true. This is exactly what happens. Now, that is the raw data of the prophecy. You are going to be bound, right? But look what happens in the next verse, verse 12. When we heard this, 
we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Here's what I think is happening. Agabus gives some raw data from the Holy Spirit brought to his mind about what is going to happen to Paul. You are going to be bound. They are going to hand you over. That's the raw data. But any revelation that we receive from God needs what? Interpreted. What does it mean? And then it needs applied. What should we do in light of what it means? Well, the church, for understandable reasons, they know and love Paul dearly. When they hear this prophecy from Agabus, you're going to be bound, they, in this kind of a knee-jerk, kind of gut-level reaction, they say, this must mean that you are not to go to Jerusalem. This has to be what this means. That's how they interpret it. And then they want to apply it this way. Don't go to Jerusalem. We love you. Avoid that place because you're going to become a prisoner there. But Paul has already heard from the Holy Spirit the interpretation of this prophecy. They've both heard the same prophecy, but Paul's interpreting it differently. He does not think this is instruction for him not to go. It's just forewarning of what is coming. And Paul has already prepared his heart not only to be bound, but to die there if that's what the Lord wants. It's an incredibly powerful and painful passage. Now, I just want to make some observations for you this morning based off of this. First of all, hearing God and understanding him can be challenging. Can we just say that? as a base, Especially in a church that values prophecy and a church that values hearing the Holy Spirit, can we just take a break, a time out for a second and say that sometimes it can be hard to hear God, right? And sometimes not only hard to hear God, but hard to understand then what it means or hard to know how to apply it. These challenges are real. And I love the honesty of Acts 21 because it's messy, isn't it? God is clearly speaking, but it's messy. There's disagreement, genuine disagreement about what it is that God might be saying. But I love that for all the messiness, Paul is listening to the Holy Spirit in the context of his family on mission. They're wrestling together with what it is that God means, with what it is that God is saying. And friends, I just want to tell you something. I've said many times from this place, we hear God better together, don't we? We hear God better in relationship. We hear God better when we're in conversation, asking, what is God meaning by this? What is it that he's saying? So I said to say, if you have ever felt like it's hard to hear God, if you feel like other people do and you don't, or they get prophetic words and you're not, I want to say it was hard for the early church too. It was hard for Paul and the people who surrounded him. And you are in good company and don't give up, all right? Um, and secondly, the second observation I just want to make that pain makes it even harder to hear God. I actually think that accounts for a lot of the confusion in this passage. It's, it, it's not that people don't want to hear and understand God in this passage. It's that they are hurting because the news isn't sounding so great. Um, they are hurting because they can sense the storm clouds forming. They're hurting because they know that what's coming next is probably not going to feel very good. And as soon as we start feeling pain, it gets harder to hear the voice of the Lord. Is there 
a witness in the room to that. Amen? That it is harder to hear him. Um, and this is one of the things that makes scripture so real to me is it is filled with the wrestlings, with the questions, with people who want with all their hearts to hear what God is saying but find him to seem strangely silent in the middle of their pain. I can relate to that. You can relate to that because we've been in the middle of that before. So pain makes it harder. But this is the last observation where I'm going to camp out for the last few minutes and then we're going to close. Is that even in the unclear painful places, God has clearly spoken his love. Even in the unclear and painful places, God has clearly spoken his love. I find this to be remarkable in this passage, that for all the pain, the tears, the emotional turbulence, the difficulty in understanding what God is saying, Paul seems to be remarkably clear and resolute in the direction that he is going. He seems to know that he is supposed to return to Jerusalem. Um, to, to the amount that it's possible for him to know, he seems to know it and is taking steps in that direction. Now, how is it that he has this kind of clarity at this point in his ministry when it seems like everything is falling apart, when it seems like things are going to get worse, not better? Where does he get the kind of clarity to ask the question, what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it and then to obey? Where does he get that kind of clarity? Well, friends, Sunday school answer but I think Paul is absolutely assured of the love of God. And this brings to him a clarity, even in the midst of this painful place. As a matter of fact, from the city of Corinth, where he had ministered by this point years prior, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And he said this, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you could come up, Anthony. Here's what I think Paul knew, and it was the secret to his clarity in the midst of the pain. He knew that God was love. How did he know that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of confusing prophetic words? We know in part, we prophesy in part, trying to understand what it is that God is doing in this circumstance. How is it that he knew the next step to take? Here's some of where I think the clarity came from. He took what was less clear to what was more clear. Do you hear me? He took what was less clear, these prophetic words, and he took it to what was more clear and let what was more clear interpret what was less clear. Because not all revelation is created equal. Um, prophetic words are great. We embrace them at our church. As, there's more, as a matter of fact, I was sitting here this morning. Someone sent me a powerful prophetic word in our church. I love leading in environments where God is speaking by his Holy Spirit through all of you. It's a powerful experience as a pastor. Um, and we embrace that. But friends... The, the clarity of revelation, the most clear place that we see God's heart for us is actually not in prophetic words. They're wonderful. It's just not the clearest. Um, we see far clearer God's heart for us in his written word, right? 
which is why we ground ourselves in this. And then we take what is less clear to what is more clear. The prophetic words that are spoken to us to what is more clear. But if you really want clarity and revelation about God's heart, about his purposes, about his plan for your life, then you can look to prophetic words, you can look to the written word, but what you really look at is Jesus the Christ, who is the truth himself, hanging on a cross for us. If you've ever questioned if God loves you, you can come to church asking for the next prophetic word, and I hope you get it. But if you've ever wondered if God loves you, don't wait for the next prophetic word to come drifting your way. Look at Jesus hanging there for you and for me. What more could he say? What more could he do to communicate his heart to us? That he loves us. And so Paul is getting these prophetic words. He's experiencing God in ways he doesn't completely understand. You know, the pain is coming. He has this sense that it's coming. But he's able to take what's less clear to what's more clear. See, I think Paul understood something that's helpful for us to understand too. That being a Christian does not mean that we avoid all pain and suffering. You know that. You know that in your own life. Have you ever really taken time to reflect on it? Failure happens to us too. Can we just say it? Sickness happens to us too. The random tragedies of this life, they happen to us too. They happen to followers of Jesus as well. But here's the big difference that Paul is aware of. These things, no matter what they are and no matter where they happen, are utterly unable to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. They are not able to change fundamentally who we are in light of God's love and what God has made us to be. And you know what this turns into? For the person who knows God's love in the midst of the pain, who is able to hear clearly God's love, even when the other things that God is speaking may seem less clear, you will see some really strange behaviors begin to exhibit in the midst of the painful places. And here's what I mean. Paul, later on, from a jail cell that he is eventually put into, from a jail cell that he's eventually put into, writes this letter to the church in Philippi, and you know what a major theme of that letter is? The joy of the Lord. And I'm not talking about some kind of fake joy, some plastic smile. I'm talking about someone who from a jail cell can look at what is less clear and take it to what is more clear. This is less clear. This jail cell is less clear. I don't know what it means, but I know that God loves me. Jesus hung on a cross for me. And that does not change, even when I'm in jail. And that's why Paul is able to say from his jail cell, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He knows that the resources of heaven are not somehow less available to him because he's now a prisoner. The circumstances don't dictate the love of God for him. Some of you need to hear this today. The circumstances do not dictate your identity. They do not dictate the love of God for you. I don't have time to share this story, but I'm going to share it. And then I have to get to the next service. The first funeral I did was with an African Methodist Episcopal pastor who took me as a young minister first funeral and uh, taught me how to walk with the family, you know, in that moment. And we were doing a funeral together for a young woman who had died of sickle cell. 
And I was there not only for the funeral, and she died as a child, about nine or 10 years old. Um, I was there not only for the funeral, but I was there when she passed as well, because in her final days, they put her on life support in Children's Hospital. And me and this other pastor gathered with the family. I was brand new in the ministry. You get thrown into these circumstances. They're just so intense. I didn't know what to say or do. I remember watching every move of this AME pastor and trying to learn from him while we were there with the family in the hospital. I remember we gathered, or some of you have heard this story, we gathered around um, this little girl who we had been praying for healing for, and she's you know, laying in this hospital bed. The family gathers around, and um, you know the nurses walk us through what's gonna happen, assuring the family that she's not gonna be in pain because the machines are about to be disconnected. And then the nurses began to initiate the process to take her off life support, and she passed just a few minutes after. But I remember as the machines were taken down, um, I remember this pastor beginning to say, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. This worship just began to rise up out of him. You will see some strange things in the place of suffering where what is less clear is getting interpreted by what is more clear. That situation, I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus, how much you know your Bible, that situation, it's hard to hear God in the midst of that. It's hard to know what God is saying. It's hard to understand his heart in the midst of that place. But if I want to know if Jesus loves us, if I want to know that he loves that little girl, I do not look at that hospital bed. I look at Jesus dying on a cross for her, for me, to make this all right again. That's what I look at. That's what I fix my eyes on. This morning, no joke, I woke up thinking, Lord, I can't preach this morning. I felt so out of it. What is happening? <laughs> we take what's less clear to what is more clear. Take the confusing to what is clear. God's heart for us. His love for us. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Psalms describing the people of God, the covenant people who are covenanted to his love. They are not afraid of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. They are not afraid of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. In your own life, and especially when you're on mission because you're attaching your life to the pain of other people. Um, bad news can happen any day, right? Bad news can always be right around the corner. That's the truth. And just because we're followers of Jesus does not necessarily take that reality away. But here's the big difference for us. We are not afraid of the bad news because even if it's confusing and even if God's voice gets difficult to hear in that place, we know that our futures are going right into the brightness of God's love and that nothing can take that away from us. Amen.